Hey folks, Brian here. I'm sorry to report that, if you haven't heard the news already, we lost a legend last week. BJ Thomas passed away after a battle with lung cancer. I talked to BJ last September, and I really connected with him on a deep level. So much so, that I felt like I made a new friend after our chat. I still remember the moment when he told me that his dad struggled with alcoholism, and I revealed that my dad struggled with addiction too. When I said those words, I could see his eyes well up a little, and he said something like, well then, you know what I'm talking about. In my humble opinion, moments like this made the YouTube version of this interview the most popular interview in the history of the podcast. Because on camera, you can really see the emotion in BJ's face when he's talking about his childhood and his amazing career over the last 50 years. So to honor BJ, we're going to replay the interview in its entirety as it aired in September of last year. Rest in peace, BJ. I did the Tonight Show, and uh, Johnny, he kind of liked me. I could come over and, and talk to him. One night in particular, he says, you know, BJ, you're working. I looked at your schedule. I mean, you're doing, you know, like 245 shows this year. And he says, how do you do that? I, and I said, well, I take a lot of pills. <laughs> oh, and, gosh. you know, it really threw him off. And he went, oh, oh, and he, and he got shook up. And, of course, it shook me up. And so then at a certain point, I stopped doing TV. And I really didn't do any of those shows again until I got sober. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. BJ Thomas is on the show. BJ has sold over 70 million records with hits like Hooked on a Feeling, which peaked at number five on the Billboard charts. BJ's first number one hit was the song Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head from the film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Raindrops keep falling on my head But that doesn't mean my eyes will soon be turning red The cry is not for me Cause I'm His second number one hit, Hey Won't You Play Another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong song I first heard when I was probably seven years old when my dad was singing along to it in the car. Hey, won't you play another somebody done somebody wrong song and make me feel This happens to be my personal favorite, and I still spontaneously break into this song around my own family. Over the last 50 years, BJ has had a total of eight number one hits and 26 top 10 singles. His song Raindrops won an Oscar in 1970 for the Butch Cassidy movie. And BJ even performed that song at the Oscar ceremony, which he talks about during the interview. BJ was a frequent guest on the talk show circuit as well, with multiple appearances on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson and The Ed Sullivan Show. He was also somehow able to cross over into not just country, but into gospel music as well becoming the first gospel artist to go multi-platinum. In 1981, BJ became the 60th member of the Grand Ole Opry. He also won five Grammys, and in 2014 was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. BJ is ranked by Billboard in the top 50 most played artists over the last 50 years. And even though BJ has been doing this for decades, 
he is still performing and has performances booked through the end of 2021. Although it was great to talk to BJ about his awards and accolades, what made this interview cool was the connection we made. We both spent time in Houston when we were young, and our fathers both struggled with addiction issues. So it was impactful for me to talk to BJ on this level. He turned out to be an incredibly sweet, humble, and creatively insightful guest. So without further ado, let's jump right into my chat with Grammy-winning multi-platinum recording artist, BJ Thomas. Mr. Thomas, thank you so much for making time for me. I know you're, you're busy and you have uh, a lot of things going on and, and you made time for me, so thank you. Yeah, hey, well, thanks for talking to me, man. Just, just call me BJ. BJ it is. Okay. Well, uh, you and I have something in common. I spent some of my childhood in Houston, Texas. I actually went to high school in Houston. Oh, you did? Yeah. Where'd you go? Aleph Hastings. Oh, okay. Yeah. I went to Reagan in Houston. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Houston was a great place, great city for music. Uh, yeah, I always remember Ray Charles was there twice a year. And of course, I, I was uh, very familiar with Bobby Bland and I used to go see him all the time. They always had a number of R&B acts coming through town. And then they had, you know, of course, Dick Clark and all that. So it was a great, it was a great music city. You know, that I was going to ask you about that. Why do you think music was a hub back then? You know, I, I don't know. I, uh, you know, we had Peacock Records there, uh, Don Roby and Peacock Records. And, uh, you know, that was a huge uh, R&B label. And, uh, you know, they just had a bunch of great people. You know, I, I don't know. It was, a, it, it was quite different back then, it seems like to me. I mean, I haven't lived there since... 67, but now, now I go down there now, but only if I'm getting paid, you know, <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go work, I'll go work somewhere. But the, right. You know, I, I don't know why that is, but uh, I've seen some fantastic shows there, Sam Cooke, and of course I saw Jackie Wilson at least once a year there, so I don't exactly know why, but I know there's a lot of music coming out of that part of Texas and then, and then out in West Texas, and I, I guess it's just always been that way. I'm not even with, you know, they had ZZ Top and, uh, you know, they just had some great, great people from down there. Uh, ZZ Top. Yeah, they were just down the road for me when I was in Houston. So what, why do you think you went the direction you did musically when you, you were sort of in the, the heart of the South or at least part of the heart of the South? And it seems like you went more pop and contemporary before you kind of dived into country music. Yeah, yeah, I really didn't just uh, seriously devote my energy to country until the 80s, but uh, I was a product of Top 40 radio, and uh, all the music was on one, one station, you know, the country pop, uh, gospel, whatever. And, uh, you know, I kind of grew up with Southern gospel music, and I used to love to go to church, not so much for the church, but I love to go for the music. And I just grew up, grew up with that. I never really... Uh, you know, I guess they look at Lonesome now, my first hit kind of as a country song now, but for that time, it was a, considered more an R&B, R&B record. And my first gig out of Houston was with James Brown, and I worked with uh, Percy Sledge, Jackie Wilson, and just uh, all the great black acts for two or three years, four years, you know, until I you know, eventually hooked up with Dick Clark and that kind of thing. So I was always, the, my biggest, my favorite music was R&B music. And I'm not sure I ever really recorded any authentic R&B music, but I always, uh, 
tried to identify personally with the music I was doing. And uh, I tried to, you know, I tried to have soul about it and, and, uh, and make it sound, sound believable. So I kind of had to believe what I was doing. And, uh, you know, just at the time, um, you know, that I, that I started doing the country music, country had just had this huge explosion with the Urban Cowboy and, and uh, Kenny. Just uh, you know, uh, all the great country music that was going, and pop was kind of on the on the decline. And uh, you know, I'm really now. I'm not really sure we really have pop music now. It's more or less country and R&B and hip hop. That's kind of the the big thing now. But um, you know, it was a it was kind of a career choice because I had kind of just spent a few years in gospel music, and that had uh, you know I had recorded a. Uh, a, a song, and, and we sent out uh, sent it out to the stations, and the, you know they began to say, to them, "Well, we don't play gospel music." And we said, "Well, that's not a gospel song. If you listen to it, it's a regular country song." So it was hard once once we had the gospel kind of label. It was really hard to go back to where where I was, and I'm not sure I ever succeeded in in getting back to to just you know singing to to everyone. I don't think I'm so much concern. And I think gospel people consider me gospel and country people consider me country and pop, pop. But I've, I've been lucky in that, in that sense. But we kind of just consciously uh, went country when we left. Not, not that we totally left gospel, but we, when we decided to go back just to making uh, regular music that, I, that I'd always done. And country was so huge that that's the direction we went. Yeah, it's interesting, the, the different musical worlds that you straddled throughout your career. I don't think that you could fairly say B.J. Thomas is contemporary or country or R&B or easy listening. I mean, you really had this knack for just having your own unique voice that really appealed to, I mean, you sold 70 million records. So obviously you appealed to a lot of people. Yeah, and that's great. I've always just felt very fortunate and lucky because of that. I, you know, as, as I said, I think, I think it was just a product of being out of the top 40 era. I just tried to do the songs that I really identified, could identify with personally and songs I really believed in and kind of growing up in that area. Well, then there were all the genres on the same station, and that, I think that's why I did it. I think one of the really great things in my career was that I worked with some of the great writers and composers of my time, uh, Backrack and David and uh, uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil and Mark James and uh, Stephen Dorff and a lot of people who were uh, really, you know, and they're all in the Hall of Fame now, songwriters. And I think that was, that was really a fortunate thing that I got to work with some great writers, kind of starting in Memphis. And uh, they had to, they had a great team of songwriters, Dan, Dan Penn and Mark James and those guys. And, you know, just lucky, you know. It's an interesting dynamic that I don't think really exists today like it did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But there's this dynamic of this singer-songwriter where you have songwriters that are very prolific, but they're only known to the musical world like they're they're sort of uh, behind the scenes people almost by definition yeah but they write they write songs for particular performers like yourself like mr uh, mr butler wrote somebody done somebody wrong song and and yeah. thought of thought of you or his partner with, uh, uh, Ch- yeah, chips. That with chips moment and chips moment was happened to be my producer at that time so uh, but i think they pl- had planned on uh, doing it on someone else and they never played i would cut an album of 
with the chips and um, he never played it for me until at the end of the album we listened to the album and we didn't think we had a hit record on there uh, so the one of the one of the musicians Bobby Emmons uh, out of the um, Memphis Voice the American Studio Group said hey chips play BJ that song you just wrote with Larry and then he kind of he kind of got all embarrassed but then he did play it but I think he was planning on doing it on someone else but it was a natural natural fit for me and then that's how we used to work it I used to go uh, you know, Memphis was very busy and they were recording everybody. But, uh, and I hung out with the songwriters anyway. They were all my best friends, the, the guys uh, connected with American Studio. And we would talk about, uh, you know, hey, I'm going in the studio. We'd talk about what kind of songs we wanted. And they would, uh, you know, pitch ideas at me. How about this kind of thing? And uh, yeah. And so they would. They would write songs especially for me. And, and I think that really, uh, that really worked. So you, you started, you had a high school band in Houston, right? Yeah, I had a band called The Triumphs. It, w- it wasn't my band. It was, our, it was our band. We started the band. We were all 15 years old. We wanted to just uh, basically, I don't know if you, you remember Roy Head and the Trace. Roy Head had Treater Wright. I want to tell you a story. Dun, 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 dun. I don't know if you remember that, but we wanted to have a band like Roy. And, uh, you know, so we, uh, we got our got our band together when we were really young and we we just uh, we had a big horn section eventually after about a year and so we we basically just played rhythm and blues and rock and roll rock and roll music and it was a great way to kind of get started because I mean the first time we played together we convinced them not to put lights on us I mean we were so <laughs> scared and embarrassed until they didn't turn the lights on we kind of played in the dark and as, uh, from, from there, it was kind of a slow progression. To, but uh, it, was, it was great to be in a band because I think that's where you learn how to, how to do your thing, how to be a part of a band, what your, what your role is. And, uh, and I, I learned a lot like that. And I still talk to those guys all the time. I talked to two of the Triumphs uh, this week. So Oh, that's awesome. We're still, yeah, we're still buddies. And I talk to Roy once a week, twice a week now during the quarantine. So he's still my best friend. So when did you find your voice? When did you know that you had a voice that was suitable for performing and uh, singing in a band? Well, you know, I was, I was young. I guess I was you know, 10, 11, 12, something like that. And, and uh, I, I used to really like to go to church. I like to go to church. I like to hang out with the kids. And I loved the way the music felt. And I like to play on the baseball team and all that, and all that stuff. But I, know, I did notice early on, I'm not, I don't want this to sound like I'm, bragging on myself but i noticed that you know i never could quite stick with the with the program on the on the got on the hymns i was always i was always doing some kind of thing with the with the melody riffing and uh and i and i and i recognized what what are you doing and why can't why don't you stick with the melody so i always had a sense of uh um, and they tell me that I, I i was always singing since i was just a little guy so uh, I don't know. I just, I guess it was like just born. I was born with it. I never thought it through like I wanted to get up in front of a, bu- a bunch of people and sing. And that's the last thing I ever thought of. And I don't know if it was just a subconscious thing uh, that I was afraid of it or what. But, uh, you know, I wanna, after I got in that band and we started playing for dances, started getting popular and a lot of kids would come to see us. I often thought, man, what are you getting yourself into here? Because, you know, you're scared. You're scared to death. You don't even <laughs> want to do this, really do this. But I had such a burning desire, and, and, I, and I loved to sing until I had to, you know, I had to at some point learn how to get up in front of people without, without being too scared. You know? 
How long did that take? Still working on that one. (laughs) Oh, you're still working on it. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I I would imagine that your parents had to be pretty supportive if you're playing in a band at 15 and playing dances, supportive of your dream. Well, you know, not really. My dad was a working man. He would have rather that I had a job, uh, you know, that I had a real job. So they didn't, they were kind of, I'd say, hey, I'm singing, I'm singing with a band and they would kind of. You know, they wouldn't say too much, but I could tell they, they weren't really thrilled about it. Now, when I had my first hit record and I started getting the airplay and my dad really, he loved that. And he was, uh, you know, and he was always constantly calling the, the radio station, getting them to play my stuff. And they, they got to where they could recognize his voice without him even introducing himself. <laughs> and uh, so he loved it after it got rolling, but they weren't that thrilled um, at the beginning, you know. <laughs> So what was your first big break as a musician and a performer? Well, it was, you know, we got the chance to make our first album and we'd had some local, you know, it was kind of back in the day when the stations would play your record, even if it wasn't very good. (laughs) They'd they'd play it for a couple of weeks or maybe they'd play it for a week and uh, and, uh, they would do that for local talent. And and, uh, and so, of course, I became very good friends with all the disc jockeys and uh, and we were all friends and everything, and they were pulling for me. And uh, we got the chance to make our first album, and uh, we cut the, the album one night. So it was about 5.30 in the morning when I re- remembered I needed to cut a kind of a, my dad had asked me to make a country thing for him. And so I cut I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, the old Hank Williams thing. And, uh, you know, in three weeks, we put it out. It was on the B side of what we thought was a hit, but it found its way on the radio. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it went number one in three weeks, and uh, and I started getting gigs out of town and and uh, out of state and and things, and uh, it just kind of kind of grew grew from that. And and when did you become your own act, basically? I mean, you had a band and you recorded this hit song that went that skyrocketed on the charts. But w- when did you become B.J. Thomas, the the band? I mean, you were the guy. Yeah, well, I, ha- I kind of went B.J. Uh, because of Billy Joe Royal, who became my best friend, uh, had a, had down in the boondocks right before I had Lonesome. And once he, when he had that hit, while well, we were trying to figure out what my name was going to be, everybody called me B.J., but my name was Billy Joe and so and all that. But so anyway, I've kind of always been Billy Joe uh, professionally. And, uh, you know, I was with the, with the tribes. I, lo- I loved them. We had some great times. But when I had that, my, I had a gig, I had an offer from Dick Clark, and I'd already gone out. My first gig out of Houston was with James Brown. I went out and, and sang with James Brown. I had to put another band together. And uh, when I got this offer from uh, Dick Clark, I told the guys, "Hey, I got, I just, we just got an offer from Dick Clark." And they, and and I said, "But, but we have to back up all the acts." That was the main main reason that they offered me the gig was because I had a, I had a band. And uh, we had to back all the other acts. It was about 13 or 14 acts on that Dick Clark, on that Dick Clark thing. And uh, so they said, no, we don't want to back up the other acts. And I said, well, you know, hey, man, I mean, you know, we, ha- we have to. That's, wh- that's why we're going on the thing. And they said, well, you know, we don't want to go then. Wow. And uh, so, I, so I said, uh, well, and, you know, some of the guys were going to college and they were working for their fathers and stuff. So it really wasn't like we were breaking up, but they – they just didn't want to go do that. And I was going to be gone. Uh, we were going to do like a hundred shows in, in um, six weeks. So uh, they said, no, we don't, we don't want to do that. And so I said, well, you know, I'm going, I'm going to go. And I said, uh, I'm going to put another band together and I'm going to go. 
and they said, okay, go ahead, you know, go ahead. So I don't think we we ever re- realized we were going to be breaking up forever or I was going to be gone forever. But that's when I went out, I put another band together and I went out and then that's just what I did. The gigs uh, kept coming and, uh, you know, I kept traveling and we never, I never really went back to, you know, our circuit with the, with the trials, our circuit was kind of the boondocks in Texas. We played the big dance halls on the weekend because uh, we were kind of young when we, we, we started. And, you know, we just, we never got back together. Now, I've played one or two gigs a year with the Triumphs over the last 10 years. We do like a, uh, maybe a benefit, you know, down in the country or whatever. But uh, ever since then, it was just kind of my own, my own deal. So that, that seems like a real turning point in your career where you made kind of a gutsy decision to go out and form a band, back up these other acts yeah and you know your your fellow bandmates decided to do take the safe road and nothing against that because everybody has you know a a certain path they need to be on and but but that seems like a real turning point for you yeah absolutely Uh, you know i had to kind of uh uh you know i couldn't just hide out and uh you know by the horn section i couldn't you know kind of go stand by the drums and let them play something i mean i had to i had to be the front guy you know, it was a, it was uh, very challenging because, I, you know, I'm talking now. You can't shut me up, but but uh, <laughs> but back but back then, I mean, I wouldn't you know I wouldn't say anything. I mean, I I was a very quiet uh, you know guy, and uh, so I had to learn how to uh, get up, and uh, it it took some courage. But you know, I never it never was like a do or die situation or a crossroads or anything. It's just once I. Once I was with Dick Clark and we did that tour and it just, uh, it just kept going. And, and, uh, and, you know, I never really went back to the, to the original, original situation. I, I think there was a time or two when I, I definitely wished that I could re-up with those guys because, it, you know, we were all best friends and there was like seven or eight of those guys. Uh, but, you know, it just, it just never happened. So I had to kind of, it took a, it took a number of years to, to realize what the point was, what, what, what was the point of having, of me entertaining? I mean, you know, was it just for me to have a good time? Uh, uh, was it just money or, or whatever? But, uh, you know, as the years went by, I realized, hey, what, what I, I'm really lucky to do something where people are showing up because they want to have a good time. And uh, it's up to you to make sure that you do your best and everybody has the best time they can have. So, you know, once I kind of got a handle on that, it became a little easier. So it, it sounds like stage fright or shyness is something that can be overcome and just uh, you can teach yourself to, to move through it. Is that a fair statement? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, I would be, I would be so scared. I mean, uh, it, it was amazing. Even up through the Academy Award show when I, performed on that I, mean, I was as scared as a human being could be but you know I knew I knew that if I just did what I what I was supposed to do and just do what I can do which is sing the song and just keep you know keep a hold of myself that that it would be okay so that's how I, I got I got through it but now there were times when uh, I would do a show and I wouldn't pull it off you know I would be uh, you know back in those days sometimes uh, I would have to be under the influence to to get to get through some things. I get I get tired and 
or I'd be, I'd be afraid or, or just, just whatever. So I had to work through all, all of that and realize, uh, uh, you know, that it wasn't a party and I couldn't, I couldn't just run and hide from it. And so there, there is a way, as you say, there is a way to defeat stage fright. I think Barbara Streisand is the, maybe the most famous example of somebody who really has a, a bad case, Carly Simon. And so there are people who have gotten through it by, and you just kind of get through it by just doing what you're supposed to do. You, I just do what I, what I'm, uh, what I'm there for. I'll be, I'll be okay. <laughs> Did you find after you became clean and sober in, in the seventies that you had to relearn how to perform sober? Was that a, a, a real change for you? No, I, I didn't have to do that. Uh, that was the time when, you know what, it, it, I wasn't afraid anymore. I wasn't scared. It became, it became kind of easy. Um, you know, I was healthy. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of times uh, in my early years, uh, you know, when you're using that motivation to, to get your thing done, you're only good for just a, a certain amount of time. You, know, you might not be on top of it for an hour and a half, you know. Right. So once I got sober, uh, I, was, I was kind of comfortable and, and it was easy. And, and uh, realized, well, I remember my wife telling me one time, uh, she said, uh, "Boy, you look like you don't look like you're having a very good time up there, you know." So I purposed to look like I was having a good time, and you know, in doing that, I did I did have a good time. But it became much easier for me to do once I was once I was sober and more healthy, and you know, and I, and I had a better relationship with uh, Gloria. You know, we had some more kids, and you know, at one point, actually, we kind of quit. You know, to talk about hit and bottom and stuff, and. And I said, you know what? I can't. I can't do it anymore. And um, so, so you know, man, we just um, decided to, um, I was going to back off. So I backed off, and I did. Uh, I'd get down to doing like fifteen, twenty shows a year. And then we adopted this little girl, and and then Gloria got pregnant, and we had another kid, and it, it, then it turned into what I always, what you kind of always want. If you're married, if you're married, you want to have a family, and. You, you want to have a good, solid marriage, and uh, so it kind of turned into into that. And uh, and then I kind of picked up working again, and that's, I've worked pretty steady for you know thirty thirty years or so since 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 seventy six. Yeah, was when we got we back we backed off for a few years, and you know we we kind of got it together again. And uh, but I I don't work nearly as much as I used to. I, mean, I used to go out and be gone for three three hundred days back in the you know back when I was, when I was younger and everything. But you know now I do somewhere between fifty seventy shows a year, and uh, and that and that works that works for me. Of course, no one's working now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Shut down completely. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I've noticed that your tour dates. I went on your website, and you you have rebooked your shows all the way through October of twenty twenty one. Yeah. But it's not a 300 uh, day per per year or 300 show per year schedule, which is probably more conducive. I just go out for maybe for a few days at a time. I mean, I'm, I may, at the longest stretch, I may go out five or six days or something like that, but I just don't, uh, I'm, I'm still like a one-nighter kind of guy. I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable just working one place for two, three weeks or what have you. So I like to do the one nighter. So we'll just go out and do a few days at a time. And that, that works good for me. When I'd, I'd like to ask you about your experience at the Oscars in 69 with the uh, Butch Cassidy movie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So how far into your career were you when that happened and how, I guess, foreign or 
unfamiliar and overwhelming was that for you to experience? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it was all of those things. And, and, and I don't want to forget to mention my buddy, uh, my, my lifelong friend is like my brother, a guy named Steve Tyrell, who's a singer now, but he used to be kind of behind the scenes. And he was very instrumental in, in getting me signed on my first hit record. And, and he was very instrumental in getting me on that Oscar show because they were going to use, uh, I think, the Fifth Dimension to sing Raindrops on the on the Academy Award show. And then he, Steve knew a guy that with the Academy and he made sure that, you know, that I got that shot. And that was great. But yeah, it was like uh, that song changed, changed everything. It, 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 you know, I kind of went up and clapped, you know, <clears throat> almost immediately I had to work the Copacabana. <laughs> In New uh -huh. York, you know, <laughs> and that was like, oh my God, legendary. What am I good? And it was only, it was only like four years. I mean, I, I had my first hit really in '66. So here I was, you know, three or four years later, nominated for an Academy Award. I'm going to do the Academy Award show, and and uh, Steve and I both were scared to death, you know. But uh, the one good thing about the Oscars is they are rather uh, thorough <clears throat> about rehearsal. And you knowing what you knowing what the, uh, you're going to do, and that's pretty clear to you. So I, that was another case of, you know, if I go, I just got to go out here and do this song. And they they changed raindrops. They made it like a 12, 13 minute uh, thing, and it had bicycles and people riding around <laughs> and, and stuff. So I just had to, you know, I had to concentrate on the music and uh, kind of focus and do my thing, even though I was pretty frightened. But I had. Glenn Campbell and I were in the dressing room together, and he was performing with the True Grit. And but you know, I had a real good feeling about that. Um, but it was uh, it was very challenging because all the movie stars were there, and all the people that you oh my God, you know these people that have always been like gods to you, you know. And uh, so it was uh, it was uh, one of the of course the most exciting thing I think uh, I've ever I've ever done. And it came off. I missed a couple of words. I had to come down to the front of the stage and sit on the, the front steps and uh, and then, of course, get up pretty quick, sing, sing a line or two, and then get up and keep moving around. And I kind of looked at this certain actress, and I forgot the words, and I kind of had to go, mm, one thing <laughs> I know. And, and, uh, and I, I was so disappointed, and I thought, of course, I, I could tell, you know, people saw me make that mistake from Mars, you know. Uh -huh. it, it, was a, it was the end of the world. And so I never would even let anybody even compliment me on the show or anything. But over the over the years, I became very good friends with uh, Greg Yantek, uh, who is in the music business with ABC, and he got me a, a CD of the performance, and uh, it, it looked like it came off okay. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. So I always thought I'd really mess it up, but I did. I did pull it off quite well because of just I just did what I was supposed to do, and and. Uh, came off good. Of course, that Burt won a couple of Oscars and Hal David won one. And it was just uh, an unreal, unreal night. Uh, great time in my life. You know, I was working with uh, Mr. Bacharach, who was this awesome, you know, handsome, charming guy. And, and, and uh, when I went out to his house to rehearse before we did the bicycle scene, you know, Angie Dickinson answered the door and you know, he was married to Angie at that time. And so it was like a whole new world for me. And it happened, as you said, it happened pretty quick, you know. So after the Oscars, you really hit the, the talk show circuit and you were a pretty frequent guest on, um, I know, Johnny Carson a few times and Ed Sullivan. And you became a pretty regular fixture on the talk show circuit. Was that 
natural for you? Did it feel natural or did, were you still kind of struggling with stage fright and maybe some insecurity? Yeah, I was, st- I was still uh, dealing with that. And of course, during that time, I, I was a, a drug addict. And, uh, and uh, you know, so I, I, had to, I had to deal with it. I, you know, I had certain rules, personal rules that I kept that I, that I would not record or perform, you know, TV. I wouldn't get lit up to do that. So I had a certain amount of control over it. But, uh, you know, I think the whole thing about show business and, and being famous and, and all that stuff, I think it's all really unnatural, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's, you know, being, being famous is such a, such a weird, a weird thing. But it, it's, it goes good if, for you to sell records and make money and, and things, but it kind of goes against your natural, at least it did me, it went against my natural nature. And, I, you know, I've, I've learned to like to do it. I mean, I like to do it, the interviews that, that we're doing and, uh, and I, li- I love to perform and I love to record and that, that whole thing. But the, during that period of time, it didn't come that natural, natural to me. You know, of course, I did the Tonight Show and uh, Johnny kind of, he kind of liked me and he would have me on there and he, I could come over and, and talk to him. And, uh, one one night in particular, he says, you know, BJ, you're working. I looked at your schedule. I mean, you're doing, you know, like 245 shows this year. I mean, he says, how do you do that? I, and I said, well, I take a lot of pills. And, <laughs> oh, you know, it really threw it really threw him threw him off. And he went, oh, oh, and he and he got shook up. And of course, it shook me up and it embarrassed my my wife and embarrassed everybody. And so then there was a, at a certain point, I stopped doing TV and I really didn't do any of those shows again until until I, I got sober and that you know then I could I can handle it and I could you know not be unprofessional but the the, the uh, Ed Sullivan show was an easy thing to do he was a great guy and uh, you know he was easy to talk to and he was real really friendly and he he made me feel like he really liked me and uh, you know he he loved my wife Gloria he loved her and uh, so that that was always an easy one to do yeah I think in uh in 1970 to be that brutally honest on camera is probably a shocker it was way for a ahead host. Of its time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. right now everybody's talking about that kind of stuff and they expect that type of brutal honesty, but back then not so much. You know, I had a lot of my uh, songwriter friends and uh, people call me and say, BJ, we understand. I understand how you, how you felt, man. I understand what you were saying, but very few people did. And it was like, Oh man, you know, cause, um, there's kind of a rule in in, in the in the music business and my, probably every business. You know, you can't drop the if you're doing something. If you're a lawyer and you're presenting a case, you can't all of a sudden kind of veer off and get personal about a problem you're having. You know, so <laughs> it, you know true. it was like you know it was a, it was kind of a, a real breach of uh, approach and never do that. You know, so it was. I took took responsibility for it, but it did make me back off for a number of years because I, until I got sober, I really couldn't trust myself. I and mean, what am I going to say? Am I, so uh, you know how that. I don't know if you. Hopefully, you've never had problems with that, but it's uh, it's uh, a lot to deal with when you are also like busy and and responsible for a band and and a record label and certain things. So. Uh, it's definitely something I have experience with in my family. Uh, my dad was addicted to pain medication and was an alcoholic. And yeah, he was he was a tour pilot though for for a lot of bands uh, throughout the seventies and eighties. Uh-huh. Um, he he flew Bob Hope and 
uh, Neil Young and Hart and uh, Joni Mitchell. But I think that that lifestyle, in fact, you probably crossed paths with them, I would imagine, in the 70s and 80s. But uh, Well, I had the same experience. My, my dad was uh, my, my biggest hero, but he was uh, an alcoholic. And uh, you know he could be he could be abusive, and it was hard to get uh, get next to him. And uh, you know, so you know, when you grow up with that, you are going to have certain things uh, connected to that that you're going to have to deal with and get and get through. And uh, you know, it looks like we both we both made it. So I'm, yeah, <laughs> well, it's definitely. I mean, having family members struggle with addiction is is a formative experience for everyone around them, and it and it can yeah. create you know our own problems and, str- and challenges with uh, with substance abuse. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that lifestyle though, I mean, being on the road, my dad was on the road probably more than 300 days a year. Yeah. You know, living out of hotels and hotel bars and all of that stuff. But yeah, I'm glad you came through it in the in the 70s as early as you did. Yeah. Um, do you have time? Do you have time for a few more questions? I didn't want to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we got out. I'm Plenty of time, plenty of time. Okay. You know, Just, I always was in the, as we talked about the triumphs, I was always in the triumphs. I, there was eight of us. And it was always, hey, you know, it, it was always great. Then all of a sudden I was on the road by myself. I mean, I had another band, but I didn't even, I didn't really know them that well. And so all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're by yourself. And then, uh, you know, you, you've got to have a certain amount of character to deal with these things. And uh, I was still finding my, char- my character. Hmm. It was a tough experience, but uh, uh, I think it's uh, counted for the good in the in the long run. Uh, you know, of course, my kids are grown now and and and, and all that. But uh, it's the best thing about it is that I survived it. I came close a number of times uh, of not making it, but uh, I think you know my wife Gloria, and we you know we got fifty two years now, so having her and and she could always kind of see me for who I was and not who I thought I was. And so it it, it all worked out really well. You know, I, I've noticed, I, I've watched you in, in a lot of different performances over the last, you know, 10, 20 years. And I've heard you talk about people like Tony Bennett, who are examples of how to live a life that basically a life of, of longevity. Yeah. And how do you do it? What are your secrets or what, what are the things that you do to make sure that you give your body and your mind and your spirit an opportunity to be in this as long as possible? Yeah, well, that's, that's uh, you have to figure out your own routine, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's probably the greatest thing now is the, is the longevity of the thing and, the, and, the, and the, the being, you know, one of the 50 uh, top play, uh, top, airplay guys for the last 50 years and so there's certain things you can only accomplish you know over a period of time and then that's the thing that really is very valuable uh, to me now but you know i've got to um you know i don't i quit drinking and uh, and and sobered up because i i basically had to if i if, if i was going to continue continue singing and because i was one of those guys from my generation we all smoked and uh you know I had to quit smoking because uh, if I smoked a, a cigarette, it would blow my, blow my throat out. And then I smoked other things too. And, and, and you know, that eventually got to me where if I, if I smoked some herb or whatever, it messed up my, my breathing and my, and my, so all, most of the good things that I've done over a period of time has been to, so I could continue to uh, sing. I have to have a routine. I'm, you know, most of the time I will go in the night before a performance the first day I go in the night before I get a good night's sleep. I, I try to eat well and, 
I can't run around all the time and be partying and everything. I have to stick. It's almost like I'm in training. I kind of go into a training thing. It's like if I was a ball player, I would have to stick with the program till you know until I had the off season or something. And so I always kind of look at it like that. I get uh, I eat healthy and uh, try to get enough rest. And uh, you know, thank goodness I've always had a a pretty a pretty good uh, strong constitution, and I always could count on my throat being there when I needed it. You know. So all of these dates that you have booked through the end of uh, 2021 and, and even pre-COVID when you were touring 70 dates a year over the last 10, 20 years, how much of a hustle is it for you and your, your people to make that happen? Is it, is it effortless because of your name and, and all of these hits or is it still a hustle for you? It's a, yeah, it kind of is. I'm not involved in the hustle. That, that, that'd be a guy. That'd be the last thing I would want to have to be in. I mean, I have to, I, I want to do this kind of thing because, okay, I saw BJ talking to, you know, uh, Brian the other day and maybe he'd, he'd be good to have a what. So I keep kind of keep up my end. And it still, it still is a hustle now because, you know, you want to keep your money up. And the longer you go on there, there are lots of people now who book and, uh, for casinos and uh, who are with agencies and everything that, who never heard of me. They're not always Googling, you know, these older entertainers. You get older, and, you know, that's the one thing about music. Music is always about, uh, you know, who, who the next guy is, who, who's the next young guy or whatever. And so you have to recognize uh, at some point that there's an evolution to this thing. I mean, even with Sinatra or whatever. Right. We all have to face that face that time when there'll be a time when maybe I, I can't sing and uh, and maybe, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not as popular and that kind of thing. So I've had to deal with that over a period of years. And just, uh, you know, you try to just keep your price up. You know, I, I don't know if I'd do it for nothing or not. I mean, there was a time when I would, but now I'm not, I'm not sure now. I mean, I'm at the kind of toward the end of what could possibly, uh, you know, I'm, how much longer can I, can I go? I mean, I'm, I, I'm dedicated to getting to go until I'm 80. But uh, and Tony Bennett is the, the shining example of someone who aged so beautifully and uh, and still could do it at a certain level. So if I can still do it at a certain quality uh, that I can res- that I can respect, then I'll then I'll keep going. But uh, and I always was wondering how how would I would I retire or what would the ending look like? And now it looks like uh, that's going to be kind of dictated to me that I may not even get to work before I'm 80. We don't know exactly how this thing is going to go. So I'm, I'm very dedicated to not getting ill. Uh, you know, I don't want to get sick because I think that would spell the, the end of it. And I always have had a burning desire to, to do it. I'm sure you have a burning desire to do what you do. And so I'm, I'm really the most peaceful when I get to do what I want to do. So I'm, I'm having to deal with that now, not, uh, not really having a, it's not even an opportunity. It's just you couldn't do it if you didn't have an opportunity. So it's a, it's a diff- difficult time that I, that I don't think any of us ever thought about going through. You know? It's interesting, this concept of um, staying relevant and, as an entertainer and, um, and a star. And I know that some people struggle more than others to, to stay relevant, but one, one sign, I think, of your staying power over the years are the stars and, and singers and performers that still want to collaborate with you, that want to do benefits with you. And I, I noticed that Kebmo video. Yeah. Where uh, 
I mean, what that was an, an incredible video because it shows that you are having fun with someone who is younger than you and a completely different generation and a different genre of music, Kebmo. Yeah. Uh, singing, singing this classic of yours, most of all, and you're having so much fun together. It's a great video, but then you, you have this uh, benefit concert that you did for COVID relief with um, Lisa Loeb and George Thorogood and mm -hmm. uh, Don Felder. And, and I think that's just a testament to what you have created, kind of the legacy that you've created in music. Well, I, I was uh, very pleased that they included me in that uh, music for the COVID relief and the, for people who are struggling to feed their families and stuff. So I was really proud to be a part of that. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I kind of, and from our generation or my, my generation, it was a generation that wasn't competitive. We were all bud buddies. And, and so I don't know, is it more competitive now? I'm, I'm not sure. But it was kind of natural for us to want to sing together and, and do that. And I, didn't, I had 10 times uh, more of opportunity to sing with someone than I, that I took advantage of. I tried to make sure I, I kind of did, uh, did something that was going to work, work for me. Uh, but, you know, gosh, I worked with uh, you know, Barbara Mandrill and Ray Charles. And it, it was so much fun. And I think back, especially back from that, you know, that top 40 uh, period, uh, people love to work together, and it was a it was a great way to get together because uh, we used to all go out and tour together, be ten or twelve acts uh, on the road together, and then that kind of people got much more concerned with their own sound, and uh, they didn't want to use the sound you you use. They wanted to bring their own sound in. So you know, after one act got through, well, then they break down your stuff. They come and set their stuff up, and that's how they kind of turned into an all day festival kind of thing instead of you know, 15 acts in one, one night, one performance. And uh, so it kind of, of course, music is always, always changing. And uh, so it got to where we don't get together as much. So it was really great to get with Keb, who has this world of respect out there and who worked uh, closely with uh, President Obama and, and uh, Richard Marks. And then the new, my friend that I, I've known since she was four years old, Sarah Nimitz, uh, sang Hooked on the Feeling with me. Of course, Vince. Vince came in and sang and, you know, Lyle loved it and all those. So that was a, really a fun thing to do. What mistakes do you, when you look back on your career, what mistakes did you make in business in terms of contracts and royalties and things like that? Man, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> made all the mistakes. I didn't care anything about doing business. You know, I look at Mick Jagger. I mean, he does all his business. Total respect for a guy that can do that. and. Kenny Rogers was extremely intelligent, and uh, he, you know, he was involved in his business. But you know, that was the last thing uh, you're going to do when when you were going through some of the things I was going through. So we made all the mistakes, uh, and we were kind of from a generation in of music when when it was industry practice not to pay somebody. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. guys like Little Richard who never never got one penny in in royalties. You know, oh, that's crazy. Uh, so, you know, it was kind of during a time when, it, boy, you needed to take care of business. And uh, I, we had some good periods where we did, where we did get, get the money we, we had coming and we did make the right decisions, you know, thank goodness. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, I'm not saying it was a total disaster, but many, many business mistakes, uh, you know, that'd be the, if I, if I ever had the desire or the, the possibility of going back and redoing it, that would be the one thing. I would pay attention to because now 
at my age, it, it's it's really become important. Yeah, you know, if I had just taken care of a little business then, you know, it might be a little better right now. Yeah, for instance, uh, raindrops. You know, the raindrops song is that a song that continues to pay royalties to you? Yeah, well, you know, a, a number of years back, I don't know how many years, maybe it's been eight, ten years or so, they started paying on uh, vocal performances. Nice. Uh, and and so uh, that that has been something we get paid on. Of course, you know, you know, thank God for our union and uh, AFTRA and the musicians union and all that. So you you kind of you know, and, and there are people that dedicated themselves to making sure that uh, we all get what's coming to us. So that's been. Uh, that's been good. But yeah, they started paying on vocals and uh, that was great. I mean, I was with a great label, Scepter, Scepter Records. Ah, uh, yeah. Le- legendary. They, they were really not good with money. The best album I made with them was a, an album called Billy Joe Thomas had rock and roll lullaby on it. And it had a song called um, uh, Happier Than the Morning Sun, which was the first song that Stevie Wonder had written that another guy, myself, did before he he did it so i had that one coming out and i had a song by paul williams and it was going to be my my you know what you know of course most plans in the music business don't go like like you think but then the, they had they had uh you know dion warwick and they had me i was selling records and dion warwick, and then next thing you knew they couldn't they couldn't even press records because they had they just didn't weren't good at business and they made some loans from people that you can't pay back and, and certain, certain uh, business mistakes. So, uh, you know, you just, uh, you never know. I'm, I'm not one of the, I'm, not, I'm not the kind of guy that ever needed a bunch of money. I've, I've always been fine. I've always had all I, all I needed and, uh, you know, it's all worked out. Okay. What, what do you think are the pros and the cons of the way the music business has changed in terms of veering away from hard copy albums and CDs towards streaming? Well, I think that's all good. I think they've worked it out now where they do get paid. I mean, I think there was a period of time when that first started when people were downloading and not paying their, you know, musicians only make money by the pennies. And and that those pennies add up very slowly. And when you have people who stop paying the pennies, then, then that, it really hurts over the long run. But but I think that's all good. Uh, you know, a guy can a guy like, a, you know, Bieber can go in, the, in his bedroom or living room and make a a worldwide uh, smash. I mean, I, I think the technology has really changed where and enabled people to uh, do more than they could ever dream of. They don't have to have a contract. They don't have to be in a big studio. We can, we can do it right here in the living room. So I think that that's that's changed. I think the the exposure you can get. It, there always was a thing back uh, years back where a good song would find its way. You know, now I'm not so sure about that because there are different ways that they program radio that doesn't go like that anymore so i mean i think there's some great changes to the business and then there are some some that aren't aren't so great but you know it's always been a good and bad kind of thing so yeah take it like it is yeah i i'm with you i i I think that there are some a lot of positives with the streaming situation but i really miss the experience of buying an album and having this catalog of music all contained and there's a theme to it there's there's a visual aspect to it there's there's a tactile experience where you're, you're feeling the gloss of the the album yeah i kind of miss your uh, i kind of forgot your question there yeah i think it's a r- huge world of difference between a cd and an album 
Right. I mean, man, I used to love it when my album would come out and I would have this great picture and I went to Central Park and shot the pictures or, or whatever. Uh, so that, yeah, I think there's a, a real, a real change there. And, and, you know, you can go back and some of your favorites, I can, I can go back. And I won't say you because you're, you're a young guy, but I can go back and all my favorite records, I, I can hear mistakes in them. Uh, you know, I, they, they speed up, you know, somebody bumps into a chair with his knee or something and they, they all have that. Whereas now uh, there's really uh, people mostly strive for perfection, perfection with a meter and, and the vocal. I mean, you go, you go do a vocal now, you have a vocal. Back when I cut in Memphis, when I did Hooked on a Feeling, we got the song. As soon as we got the tape, everything was good with the band. Then the band took the, went smoked a cigarette or whatever, and I sang the song. And, and basically, the performance was already done, but there was a spot or two. And anyway, I sang the song a couple of times, and we moved on. We were done. Whereas now, you know, you, you kind of cut a track, and, and they said, well, Thursday at 2 o'clock, we're going to do vocals. <laughs> well uh, well okay and you know I know it's been so difficult for me to make that work because vo- vocally I'm always so much better when the band is we're, we're, we're doing the song and now a lot of times the, the, the song is done and it's huge it's a huge success I'm not knocking that uh, or saying it won't be successful but maybe the band never really even got together once mm-hmm. you know it was built the drum track first and then the, then they put the the keyboard and then and it got built up and then you know thursday you're going to do you know one o'clock you're going to do your your vocal so it's a, it i used to uh, I, that was a part of the of the business that i always loved the most was recording and doing a new song getting in there with a band and making that thing work and then that became after a number of years that became the most unpleasant part of the whole the whole thing because it just became so tedious and and where's the soul and singing the thing for the tenth time and, and punching in this note and that note? So it got it got for a guy that came from where you know I came from. It got it got to where it wasn't as much fun. You know? hmm. And then I had to have it on this little CD, and I didn't get to have my big. Copy, you know? <laughs> I mean, so I, it was different. And listening to your your catalog of music over the last uh, week or so, getting ready for this interview, I, I did notice that. You know, the studio recorded songs that you did were huge events. I mean, you're talking, you know, I think that I think on Raindrops, it was like 100 musicians, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, for the, you know, for the bicycle scene, there was only three guys, me and me and three guys. It was kind of a different thing in, in the movie. But yeah, when we recut it for the single version, it was the number one record. I mean, there was like 90 guys in there, you know, and Bacharach was, I'm I'm singing here and Bacharach is standing on this riser and he's directing. And I mean, it's, uh, it was an awesome experience, you know, and we only did when we recorded uh, Raindrops and not to make it too big a deal. I mean, Hey, it's just another song, but uh, many years ago, but you know, when we cut the song, we only did it three times. We did it three times, and uh, each take had some imperfections, and uh, and you know they figured it out. They spliced this take. Maybe they, I think they put all three of the takes together, splicing wise. But uh, you know it wasn't something that we were going to run through fifteen, twenty times, and uh, then then come back on another day and do the vocal. We were doing it, and I I think that's a, uh, mostly the way uh, Tony Bennett does it. He mm-hmm. sings live with a huge or- orchestra. And there is a difference that you feel. Right. You, you, you can feel it. You know? 
Yeah, it's. I think there's a certain vulnerability to it when you hear the little, little imperfections that maybe not consciously you're perceiving, but it gives it some authenticity that the newer music today, which is, as you say, they're striving for perfection and computers allow it to be perfect so easily just yeah. with an, an edit. But there, I think you, you lose something when you have that perfection. Yeah, and there's a guy, there was a guy in Memphis when I first started recording there who, who passed, who passed, but a guy named Tommy Cogbill. And uh, one night somebody mentioned, well, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of uh, speeded up in the last verse. And he said, well, if it's not faster in the last verse than it was in the first verse, you're not doing it right, you know. So this, and, and Raindrops was the same way. It started out raindrops of flame. And it kind of started out kind of like that, but then the last verse, it was raindrops of flame. It was up, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that just feels, that just, there's just a certain feeling for that kind of thing when it's not. Uh, perfection works too. I'm not saying it doesn't, but uh, the feeling was the, was the thing we were looking for. Well, BJ, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and hearing about your career. I'm excited to see uh, you start performing again, hopefully soon. And those dates hold. I notice on social media, you, you have, uh, you're quite active on social media. You have the BJ Thomas at Instagram and Twitter. The, uh, the, the, my Instagram is something I do personally. And then um, uh, and my Twitter, Twitter also, but we do a lot of PR now on, on the Twitter, which I think is the BJ Thomas also. Yeah. And we've got a good Facebook thing. And we, we're with a, gr- a great company that does it quite well. So. And your website is bjthomas.com, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a great website, by the way. So if you're, oh, thank if you. you're wanting to go um, check out BJ's career, it just covers a lot of the key points in his career and some, some nice video content in there. So check BJ Thomas out on social media. And when he's performing, check him out in your area. Mr. Thomas or BJ, thank you so much for your, for your time today. Man, Brian, I, I appreciate you supporting me. and. Uh, uh, this was a great, uh, I enjoyed this conversation and thank you. Thank you very much. And hopefully I'll, I'll see you sometime down the road. Yeah, that sounds good. I, I need to visit Texas. Where in Texas are you? I'm in Arlington, Texas. Arlington. Okay. Are yeah. you, are you neighbors with, uh, with Willie? <laughs> no, I have to go down to state? Austin to see Willie, but uh, yeah. he, he's a few hours away, but, uh, I don't, see, I don't see him that much, but... Uh, he, he, his secret to longevity is a little different than yours, I think, <laughs> and Tony Yeah, Bennett's. you know, I think Willie just takes it as it is, and, uh, you know, he's, he's another great example uh, of someone who is just, uh, you know, held on to who they were, and he's just who he is, and he's, uh, you know, totally respected by all of us out here. We, we, we really appreciate how he's done it and the, the example he said he's and he's got a long way to go yeah good yeah. for him yeah well great talking to you bj thank you buddy hey thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed today's episode if so i have a favor to ask can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review your feedback is what keeps this podcast going you can also check us out on instagram twitter and facebook with the handle at dreampathpod and as always Go find your dream path.